They say everyone has a great story burning inside them. How effective any one person is at telling that story is more debatable. I'm Rome. And I'm Caitlin. And welcome to A Couple of Notes. Each episode, we'll read a book that we felt had an interesting premise and discuss how successful or unsuccessful the author was in their execution. As we do discuss every book in its entirety, watch out for spoilers. This month, we read Fourth Wing by Rebecca Yaros, the runaway adult fantasy romance that has taken Goodreads by storm this summer. This book has some really dark fantasy violence, including violence towards children. Consider that when deciding when and how you'll listen. Fourth Wing was published May 2nd, 2023, and is already one of Barnes & Noble's best books of the year so far. It is one of the highest-rated books on Goodreads, with a 4.67 average rating currently. Rebecca Yaros has been writing romance since 2016, but this is her first fantasy novel. Fourth Wing is the first book in a series. The sequel, Iron Flame, is already set to be released this November. Our story takes place in the fictional world of Navarre, a kingdom where soldiers ride dragons and use magic to fight a centuries-long war. There is a lot of world-building here, so this is the rapid-fire history lesson you need to get through our summary. Navarre was in a really long war with their neighbors to the south. Poramil. They made a peace treaty about 200 years ago, but now Poramil is attacking outposts, so they might be going back to war soon. Navarre also has an internal rebellion that happened just a few years ago, when their province Tyrandor decided to secede. When this rebellion ended, there was a treaty made where everyone involved in the rebellion was killed by dragons, while their children watched. And then their children were branded and forced to join the army, which is fucking brutal. The children, sometimes called marked ones, are generously permitted to live until they are 20 years old before being forced into the military, conveniently allowing several of them to be in the same training class as our protagonist now five years later. Our protagonist is Violet Sorengale. Violet is the youngest child of an influential general in the Dragon Riders quadrant of the Navarre army. Her older brother and sister are also dragon riders. The dragon riders are the badasses, so it's a lot of pressure. Violet, however, takes after her father, a scribe who loves books and history and managing her unnamed disability that some people have noticed seems similar to Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. She is not going to be a dragon rider. Got all that? Cool. So our story begins with Violet's mother telling her that she has to be a dragon rider. She says no daughter of hers is going to be a scribe. No ma'am. Violet is going to get her butt to the Dragon Riders or else. So Violet goes to the Dragon Riders quadrant, and the first thing they do is make her walk across a parapet way up in the sky in the rain. Violet notes a fun statistic that a third of everyone who attempts this parapet walk dies. She does not die. But she does catch the attention of a man named Jack, who decides that trying to kill her is his new ninja way. She's also caught the attention of Zayden Ryerson, our enemies to lovers grumpy romantic lead. He is the son of the main rebellion leader from Tyrandor, the oldest of the marked kids forced into the army. He is three years older than Violet, and they've never met, but they already have beef. His dad killed her big brother, and her mom killed his dad. So now he wants her dad. And yes, they're allowed to kill each other. In the Dragon Riders Quadrant, there are only so many dragons to go around. So it is approved, possibly even encouraged, 
to kill each other before you get to passing out the dragons, just to call the field a little. When she arrives in the Dragon Rider's Quadrant, Violet also runs into her childhood friend, Dane, who wants very badly to smuggle her back into the Scribe's Quadrant where he thinks she belongs. But she refuses, because apparently, as soon as anyone starts suggesting Violet may be too weak to be a Dragon Rider, now she really, really, really wants to be one. Over the next several months, Violet trains in combat, learns about battle strategy and dragon breeds, and discovers that what she lacks in physical strength, she can make up for in cunningness and willingness to fight dirty. Many of her fellow cadets see Violet's creative problem-solving as cheating, but just as many think that she is clever and she makes friends and allies in her squad. Violet gets even more attention after threshing, the process in which dragons choose their riders. Violet intercepts a group of cadets, including Jack, the one who really wants to kill her, attempting to murder a baby dragon, and she intervenes. She almost gets her ass kicked, but then another absolutely massive dragon shows up and ends the fight. And then the big dragon, whose name is Tarn, and the little dragon, Andarna, both choose Violet as their rider. Initially, the people in charge say Violet can't have two dragons, but the dragons are like, what are you going to do about it? We're dragons. So now Violet has two dragons. But there's another twist. Tarn is the bonded mate of Segale, Zayden's dragon. You remember Zayden, the sexy son of the traitor who hates Violet because their families have history? Now their dragons are bonded, so they are too. There's even a possibility that their lives are linked in a if-you-die-I-die die kind of way, and their dragons can never be apart for more than a few days. Apparently, dragons are very codependent. All of this, of course, lays the perfect groundwork for them to have a forced proximity love story. So now, Zayden and Violet have to get along, but also everyone is very jealous of Violet because she got two dragons and some people didn't get any, and so now everyone's going to try to kill her. And since now, if she dies, Zayden dies, Zayden doesn't want her dead anymore. He wants to keep her safe. Fortunately, the dragons can talk to each other and to them telepathically, so it's really easy for him to know whenever she's in danger. He also assigns a first year named Liam to babysit her. Also, having a dragon has perks. So when you get a dragon, you get magic powers. Either that or you combust. But fortunately, Violet gets magic powers. She can wield lightning, and she gets the bonus ability from Andarna to freeze time in short bursts. She doesn't have a lot of control over it, but she's working on it. Also, she's really fed up with her friend Dane, because even now that she has two awesome dragons and cool lightning powers, he still acts like she's made of glass and she's really over it. Zayden, meanwhile, is becoming more and more convinced of Violet's abilities. He finds her competent, strong, and sexy, and they start hooking up, which of course Dane has a problem with. Everything comes to a head during a major training exercise, all the cadets are told that they are to behave as if a major attack has occurred. All the standing troops have been overwhelmed. Every available rider must go to the front lines. Zayden, as a wing leader, has the privilege to assemble his own team for a special secret mission. So, of course, he's bringing Violet along. He's also bringing all his friends from home. In other words, a bunch of other marked ones. But, surprise, it's a trap. Turns out, Zayden and the other Marked Ones have been giving weapons to the enemy kingdom of Poromiel for years. But they have a good reason. The same reason their parents rebelled. There is another enemy that Navarre has been keeping secret. Venon. 
evil sorcerers who use dark magic to create dragon-like monsters called wyvern. Violet thought they were a myth, but it turns out they are very real, and they've been attacking Poromiel and Navarre. Violet is really mad that Zayden didn't tell her, but she's more angry when she finds out the army has set up a trap for Zayden and his team, which includes her, on their secret training mission. And now, they're all about to be attacked. They fight the Venon, two people die, including Liam, and Violet almost dies, but she survives and wakes up still pissed at Zayden for keeping secrets, but also ready to throw hands at the Navarre government for letting innocent people die and for pretending there was a revolt when really Zayden's people just wanted to acknowledge the Venon threat. So now, she's a rebel too. Also, surprise, her brother isn't actually dead. He also faked his death and joined the rebels. The end. Now that we covered the bones of that story, here's a quick ad break. Welcome back. We'll get our critique started with our initial thoughts. You go first. I feel like the first thing that we need to discuss, like, initial thoughts-wise, is how much of that plot, like, this is a really freaking long book. The audiobook was 21 hours long. Mm-hmm. I just summed it up in under 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. I left out so much because so much was not freaking important. Mm-hmm. There's so much filler in this book. Yeah. There's so much filler in this book. Yeah, like, the reason we chose this book was obviously because of its runway popularity and because we just happened to be able to get a copy in a good amount of time. Yeah. And I knew going into this book that it was probably going to be a love-it-or-you-hate-it book because I've seen it raved about on Goodreads and on Twitter. And Book Talk, don't forget Book Talk. And on Book Talk. And yet every review I've seen of it on BookTube... That's YouTube for book lovers. It's still on the same site, though. Like, don't get too confused. Every review I've seen of it come in panned this book and said it was awful and the worst book they'd ever read. Now that said to me, maybe it's a you love it or you hate it kind of book. And after reading it, I can tell you it was meh. Yeah, it's... It's meh. It's... It's an adult fantasy romance. Like, I don't know what else to tell you. It's an adult fantasy romance. Mm Mm-hmm. Does it succeed as either a fantasy or a romance? Let's talk about that. Um, <laughs> let's talk about that. Yeah, so let's start with some positives. There are a couple positives to this book, and let's discuss them. Mm-hmm. First of all, the setting. Yes. The general concept of we're at a school for dragon riders, people learning how to use magic and ride on dragons. That's cool. That's very cool. That's very cool. I was immediately intrigued in that. If you like fantasy and you like dragons and you like magic, fuck yeah, you're going to be into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the whole concept's very cool. Especially, with, like, with the addition of getting magical powers through your dragons. Mm-hmm. Like, there's so much to work with here. We even get a map at the beginning of the book. You gotta love the maps. You love a map, yeah. Love a map. Mm-hmm. And the dragons keep so much of their own personal history and secrets from their writers. Like, it's kind of a situation to where the dragons could be in charge if they wanted to be, but they really just want to protect their homeland. And so, since the humans of Navarre want the same thing, they kind of work together, but really, the dragons could turn on them if they so choose to. So the dragons can have as many secrets as they want. Yeah, it's kind of this idea of, like, the dragons are in charge, but they let the humans think they're in charge until the humans are about to fuck up, and then the dragons are like, excuse me, did you forget that we're dragons and we're in charge? (laughs) Yeah, so, like, there's a lot of opportunities for intrigue here. Mm-hmm. 
both within how the kingdom runs itself and with how the magic system works, which is never really explained, but that's kind of okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. But, and unfortunately, I think all three of our positives have a but on this, but it's not utilized as well as it could be. A lot of the setting is used for school drama bullshit. Yeah. It's mostly used as an excuse of here's a hierarchy and a forced proximity for people to be horny. Yeah. And, like, it's it's almost written in a way of, like, this could very easily be a YA school story if you just took out all the sex and aged the characters down. Yeah, I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> yeah, we'll get back to that. We'll get back to that. Let's go on. Like, to that was a couple positive. of our negatives all in one go. Yeah, we'll go back to another positive. The author writes a very good hook. Like, I gotta say, this book is longer than I wanted it to be. <laughs> by about a hundred pages or so. And yet, at no point did I ever feel like I wanted to stop reading. Like, we end each chapter on a nice hook that makes you want to keep going. And even the twist at the end of... Violet's brother still being alive made me want to read the sequel, even though I doubt that will happen. There's a but to that, too. But I'll wait until it's time for it. Mm -hmm. The third positive thing, there's a good bit of diversity in yeah. this book, which is nice. You know, we're in a fantasy world, so there are not races in the way that there are in the real world, but there are people of varying skin tones, there are people of various genders. There's clearly this idea that women have an equal standing in the society that men do. Sexualities are, it's like, you can be gay, you can be bi, it doesn't matter. That's not a thing. Homophobia doesn't exist in this world. Um, we have a non-binary character who's just like there. They don't really play a big part and they do die in the end, but they're just there. And so it's like, that's nice. You know, casual diversity. Yeah, it does feel like casual diversity, especially with Violet also being disabled. Mm -hmm. And that gets a lot more focused than the variety of skin colors and sexualities. All that could kind of feel like it's in the background. But it is nice to read a high fantasy novel that has diversity without having to rehash prejudices that we deal with in the real world. Yeah. Sometimes you just want to get away from all that bullshit. Yeah, the only prejudices that exist in this world is the prejudice of this one group of people rebelled years ago and now everyone hates them. Mm -hmm. And that's the primary prejudice in this world. And it's kind of this idea of like, it's not even that ethnicity because if your parents weren't directly involved in the secession, you're cool. It's just if you bear this mark that says my parents were bad guys. It's like the Death Eaters in Harry Potter. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it did feel that way, didn't it? <laughs> it? It felt very Death Eaters in Harry Potter. Like, you got the dark mark on you guys. <laughs> mm-hmm. Except instead of it being, you actually did something wrong, it's your parents did something wrong when you were a kid. It's like, imagine if, you know, whenever all of the Death Eaters went to Azkaban, they also smited all the children with dark marks and were like, now you have to carry this burden too. Also, we're going to kill you all. <laughs> so, like, the point is, it was nice to get some casual diversity and some representation, especially getting to see someone with non-binary pronouns. 
So, obviously, I've been having trouble staying on track with the positives because all the positives come with a but. So let's move on to our notes. Our negative notes? <laughs> let's take out our red pens. And let's edit. Yeah. Let's start with the demographic. Yes, let's do that. So this book is listed kind of as the new adult category, mm -hmm. which is a relatively new genre demographic that's just now starting to be acknowledged, which is kind of like college age. Yeah, new adult, I guess, is for like people in their 20s. And new adult is always a weird thing because it basically means you want the vibe of a YA, but you want to be able to say fuck and talk about sex. I don't think that's typically what it was supposed to be, but that's how it definitely felt in the terms of this story. That's how it felt in the terms of this story, at least, yeah. I think normally it's like you encompass that very specific college age range when you're just starting to become an adult and you're learning how to be an adult. Yeah. It's kind of like, it's kind of like the new version of coming of age, because like coming of age stories used to be very centered around like high school era and things like that. And now that as the world is changing, people are starting to come of age a little more like in their 20s. And we're seeing this idea of the 20s, is, your 20s as being more of a time for exploration and a time to become a real adult. Mm -hmm. And with that, this new genre is developing. I agree. But in this case, it reads like young adult, but add some sex. Yeah. And that just didn't work for me. Because new adult is technically adult. Like, the characters are 20. They're not virgins. Mm -hmm. They are going to war. They should be dealing with adult issues. But it feels so childish. Everything about how this book is written feels childish. Yeah. It. You know what it reads like? It reads like fan fiction. It reads like horny fan fiction written by teenage girls who are like, but he's just so sexy, though. Like, they're taking a story that has subtle sexual stuff, and then they're adding explicit scenes in. Yeah. Not that I would know anything about that. No, that's not how we started our writing career. Mm -hmm. Actually, our fan fiction was very classy. You can still find it online. <laughs> We're not here to plug that, though. Um, anyways, but yeah, that's what it felt like to me. And that was particularly weird, considering that this is written by a grown adult with six children of her own, but she writes romance novels. So it was kind of like, it kind of felt like what she started writing was a romance novel and then she, like, she couldn't get away from that. She couldn't get away from what she originally writes, which is romance novels. And what you're left with was something that doesn't feel quite like either. Yeah. But also doesn't feel quite complete as a fantasy romance novel for adults either. Yeah, like, the characters, they all act like they're 16, but they're 20. And I know that doesn't seem from an to an older person like a big gap, but it really is. <laughs> yeah. And I expected, since we aged them all up to 20 to 23, we were going to deal with maybe some mature topics or throw in a little bit of nuance <laughs> to this story. Yeah. But that never happened. It just felt even more childish than books typically aimed at 16-year-olds. And, like, I I get it that 20-year-olds are still, like, thirsty as hell. They still have crushes. They're still hooking up left, right, and center. Like, I get that. And I get that you put a bunch of 20-year-olds in a college together and you say you're not allowed to leave this place and also any one of you could die tomorrow. They're gonna 
do stupid shit. Like, that happens in the real military all the time. But I just didn't want so much of the focus of the book, and particularly the protagonist's thoughts, to be on that. It's very weird when you have a character who is actively facing death around every corner, and she's face to face with like a man who wants to kill her, who she's been told multiple times wants to kill her, and she's sitting there thinking about like how she wants to lick his biceps or something. Yeah. Like, the summary really could not fully capture how relentlessly horny this book was. Like, it was too much. There's even a scene where the dragons fuck. Yeah, and it's like, why? Ew. Like, I appreciated that you were smoking a joint while this happened, like, represent for marijuana. <laughs> but was this necessary at all, other than to force these characters who were already in close proximity together to interact? Like, this all just felt unnecessary, and like it was, it was such a distraction from the interesting parts of the story. Yeah. Like, my god, Violet acts like she's 13 and just discovered horniness for the first time. It's all she ever thinks about. Yeah. And, like, she makes a really big deal about the fact that she's not a virgin. Which, like, on the one hand, I kind of appreciate it. After reading so many YA stories where the female protagonist is a virgin, and that's a huge part of her romance, is like, oh, I'm a virgin, I'm, you know, I'm this weak, supple little thing who's also never had sex. Like, the first thing that I always come to think of is, uh, Divergent, and how, like, Triss has six fears and one of them is intimacy. I appreciated that that wasn't a thing. She's a sexually confident young woman. But at the same time, like, you're a sexually confident young woman, so why are we sitting here having you have to have the conversation with yourself where you say to yourself, I am not attracted to toxic men, while you stare at the toxic man and think about how hot he is. Mm-hmm. That's... I don't know. I want, I want a better developed character than that. Yeah, and I think that plays into another note we had, which is the massive tonal issues this book has. It's like we are constantly being bat back and forth between, I'm in danger, I'm horny, I'm in danger, I'm horny. And we're just getting this tonal whiplash over and over again. Mm -hmm. Like, can we take this seriously? Or is this not going to be taken seriously? I mean, real named people are dropping like flies. I feel like that should be more important than how horny you are all the time. Yeah, literally, like, I talked about the parapet and how, you know, one third of people die on the parapet. So we meet four named characters before she steps on the parapet. By the time she gets across the parapet, one of them is dead. And yet, before she ever crosses this parapet, the first thing on her mind, face to face with Zayden Ryerson, oh my god, he's the sexiest man I've ever seen. Like, young lady, you are about to go walk across a narrow stone bridge thing, hundreds of feet in the air, with no safety net, and you just watched a guy that you just met fall off and die, screaming all the way down. And you're... you're horny. Stop it! <laughs> yeah. Like, maybe it's just because I'm terrified of heights, but... <laughs> and like you said earlier, there are times in which the danger could fuel 
the desire, mm-hmm. but it happens so often that it doesn't feel natural. Yeah. It feels forced. It feels like this story isn't to be taken seriously. Yeah. Like, if if the general horny vibes had been toned down by a lot, it could have felt natural when these scenes happened. Yeah. Like, like the first time she and Zayden sleep together is right after the first time she kills someone in combat. That could have been a good example of sort of how their romance is fueled by the violence around them and the tension that's been building up and all this other stuff. But because they've come so close so many times and the sexual tension has been so palpable and the threat of death has been so glossed over in favor of the horniness so many times it's almost like you forget that the reason they're having sex is because she's emotional about having just killed someone i had absolutely forgotten that by the end of the sex scene which was extensive by the way Mm -hmm. and it's a big deal because she kills someone that she has gone out of her way multiple times this year to avoid killing Mm -hmm. and it's a really big deal for her to have this first blood on her hands But then the sex scene goes on for so long, and after that, we don't ever talk about killing the guy ever again. It's all about the sex scene. It's all she can think about for the next, like, four chapters. It's just, what have we sacrificed in this story just to have this one character's defining personality trait to be that she is constantly horny? Mm Mm-hmm. Speaking of what we've sacrificed, our next note is, while the world building in the story may seem complicated from the summary, it is not well explained. I gotta tell you, at the end of reading this book, we did have to go and Google exactly what the backstory of this world was because we could not remember it. Mm -hmm. Nothing is really explained in a way we would remember it. Like, Violet has this character trait of when she gets scared, she starts reciting facts to herself, like flashcard style. And you know we're not going to remember any of that. Yeah. Because of the looming threat that she's actually facing. And we spend so much time cooped up in the college... That we don't really even have an idea of what Navarre looks like, what it t- survives on, what it trades, its relationship to the world. We need these kinds of things explained through examples that affect Violet. We need to see the world through her eyes and her personal experiences. Yeah, and it's weird because we get these little tidbits of things like her on the parapet about to, you know, cross it and being really scared that she's going to die... And she starts reciting to herself, like, you know, this trade agreement on this day said that this and this can happen. But, like, we're not going to be memorizing that and paying attention to what that is all about. Because we're focused on the people falling off the parapet. And is she going to fall off the parapet? I can't remember what that trade agreement was about. You know, and then the thing is, it takes place in a school, the whole thing. You could have used that classroom for exposition. But you don't. They never do. Like, when I had finished the book, I genuinely did not know if we were actively at war, who we were fighting, what the history of the conflict was, why the characters think they're at war. Because, yeah, one point the story brings up is that the characters have a lot of information hidden from them by the elites. So, you think that would fuel intrigue in the characters and in the situation? But instead, we're given so few scraps of information, we don't really know where the end of what they know for sure is. 
And furthermore, Violet is a smart woman. She was supposed to be a scribe. So why isn't she a little bit more curious when she starts noticing discrepancies in what they're told versus what she discovers on her own? But almost no time is dedicated to that. Yeah, she even is assigned to library duty as her morning chore once she becomes a dragon rider, which means it is her job to go down to the scribes and transfer confidential documents from the scribes to the dragon rider's college. And there's a couple points where she sees things that she's transporting and then later hears something different in class. And even then, while it raises a red flag and makes her go, oh, that's kind of weird, I'm pretty sure I read something different, rather than thinking, there must be things they're not telling us because they're secrets afoot, she thinks, I must have read something wrong. Or, you know, I'm sure there's a very good reason why they're not giving us that piece of information. I shouldn't tell anybody about it. What I read was probably confidential and it was wrong of me. Yeah. And even with Zayden, like, she finds out that Zayden and the other first years are talking together in secret in large groups. <laughs> and even though she knows that everyone would think they were planning rebellion stuff, she's just like, well, I didn't overhear anything about rebelling. They were just talking about getting through the year. So it's like, it's a study group, obviously. <laughs> and even though she has all the more reason to continue to suspect him, she doesn't. Even she though Zayden full-on catches her snooping and threatens her. She's still like, I'm sure he's just worried that people would be suspicious of something that's actually quite innocent. Mm-hmm. And she never gets more curious. Like, why is this smart character, who's one of her main traits is that she's clever, so oblivious to everything going on around her? And then she's so shocked and appalled when she finds out that they were, in fact, hiding something. Uh-huh, which could count as rebelling. But in fact, they were the good guys. <laughs> And then she's just mad that they didn't tell her, like, girl, this is on you. You could have, throughout any point in this year that this has taken place, taken it upon yourself to learn more, but you didn't. Yeah, and I think her being overly trusting is also, like, a consistently inconsistent trait. Because she also has moments where, like, something bad will happen to her. And she'll be like, I can't tell anyone about this because no one would believe me. So it's like she doesn't trust anybody. But then conversely, there's this one guy, Dane, that... So Dane is her best friend from childhood. At the beginning of the book, there's a bit of a love triangle between her and Dane and Zayden. She's kind of into Dane. She doesn't think Dane's into her. Then it turns out Dane is into her. He kisses her. And she's like, oh, ew, that was actually kind of like kissing my brother. I didn't like that. And so then she friend zones him. Don't say it like that. That puts the onus on the woman. Okay, fair enough. She decides she doesn't want to be with him in that way. Also, he's kind of like, yeah, no, we shouldn't be together because I'm your commanding officer. And she's like, right, that's why we shouldn't be together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but also at the same time, it's very clear that he has killed any feelings she could have had for him by constantly telling her how incompetent he thinks she is. Yeah, she's really become fed up with him because, like, I only mentioned one occasion in which he tries to smuggle her out in the summary. He does it no less than four times. No less than four times he says, here, I'm going to smuggle you out. And she says, no, I'm staying. And then a few days later, he comes back and says, I found a new way to smuggle you out. And she says, I told you already I'm not doing that. And he says, but you have to. You're too weak. You're going to die here. 
And she says, then I'll die here like everyone else. And he says, but I can't let you die. You're special. And she says, no, I'm not. (laughs) And then a few days later, he comes back and they have the same conversation. Yeah. It's very clear that he's like, no, Violet, you don't belong here. You're supposed to be my little scribe wife. You're supposed to stay safe in the scribe quarters until I can come back for you and marry you. Yeah. And she's like, we haven't even dated. Yeah. (laughs) He clearly already thinks of her as his before she ever crosses that parapet. Despite having dated other women and never having actually made a move on her and all kinds of other stuff like that. So she's pretty fed up with him. So at one point she's attacked by a bunch of other dragon riders. And she's attacked in her sleep, which is one of the few rules they have whenever it comes to killing each other. You're not allowed to attack each other in your sleep. If you do that, it's murder. And Zayden saves her life, and she knows who orchestrated this. And it's someone that Dane trusts. And she says she cannot tell Dane because he would never believe her. And that says a lot. When you are attacked in your bed, in your sleep, your life is threatened, and you feel like you can't tell your oldest and truest friend because he would never believe you. That says a lot about what that relationship is. And sure enough, when Zayden then proceeds to call out the person who did this and say, hey, you broke the rules and the penalty is death, Dane goes so far as to say that Violet is not a liar, but she must be mistaken. And he proceeds to try to take her memories because that's his magic. That's his magic that he has from his dragon is he can touch anybody and garner their memories at a specific event. He tries to take her memories without her consent. And she's like, get away from me. You should take my word without needing to touch me. And he won't do it. And he gets real mad about it. Like he's real offended that she won't share this memory with him, this traumatic memory. And later in the book, he uses his power without her consent to hurt Zayden and to eventually push the attack that gets multiple members of her squad killed in the end and almost gets her killed. Yeah, and he knowingly sends her off to this place to die. Like his last words to her before she goes off are, I'm going to miss you. Yeah, and the reason he decides that this is okay Because he realized she's sleeping with Satan. Either that, or he just has that much of a hard-on for the rules. Oh no, it's because he realized she was sleeping with Satan, because he sees her in in Satan's jacket. And he goes, you and him? Oh, right, right. And then he gets all hard-faced, he touches her face, and then he goes, I'm going to miss you. He's so jealous that he sends her to die. Yeah. So, um, I hate... Dane. I don't remember where I started on this tangent exactly, but I hate Dane. I think I had a different point when I started this, but I hate Dane. <laughs> I'm not surprised. I think the whole original thought of this was that the world building is not well explained. I think we've covered that. Let's move on to the fact that none of the characters feel sufficiently developed. Yeah, that's where I was going with this. <laughs> Violet is the most developed. And honestly, as far as female protagonists in a YA fantasy novel goes, she's alright. Yeah, she's cool. She's fine. But the problem is she has no agency over her story, and I never knew what she really wanted. Like, she talks about how she has to become a dragon rider because her mother threatened to force her back into the uh, dragon riders if she ever tried to leave. 
Which, okay, yeah, that's reasonable. And A never seems to take that comment seriously, so it makes sense that Violet would harp on it since no one is listening to her. But there's clearly a point in which Violet decides this is what she wanted, and that point is hard to track down. Was it that she wanted to show up her mother? Was it that she wanted to prove this to herself? Was it that she loves riding dragons? Was it for her country? I don't really know. It's not clear when this crossover happened. I actually made a note about that in my notes. It was at exactly 25% through the book. At exactly 25% through the book, she makes a choice that she is going to continue to do this out of spite. And it's because it's when they're running this big freaking obstacle course that people keep dying in. And Dane tries again to get her out of there because he's like, you're not going to survive the obstacle course. Like, you're just not. And she's failed and failed and failed over and over and over and over and over again. And she's so sick of being told that she can't do it and she can't do it and she can't do it. And she makes this remark in her head, not out loud to anybody, but just in her head, where she considers for herself if she should run to the scribe's quadrant. She considers to herself, she's like, maybe Dane is right. Maybe I should go to the scribe's quadrant. Maybe this isn't worth dying for. And she thinks about it. And then she says, no, I need to do this not because my mom is making me, but because I want to prove to myself that I can do this. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay. Like, that was that was the first moment in the book where I was like, okay, I'm proud of that. I'm happy with that. We're going to do it out of spite. <laughs> do it for spite. Let's go. And, you know, from that moment on, she's pretty, pretty settled on it. And I appreciated that. That's also the moment when she decides to stop playing by the rules and start cheating. And I also appreciated that. But I feel like doing it out of spite is not a compelling motivator for a hero. I think it is. Personally. But, like, it's not like she holds spite against her mother or the people around her. Oh, no, the person she has the most spite for is Dane. <laughs> but she doesn't even hate Dane. It's it's weak. It is her motivation weak. is weak. <laughs> her motivation's a little weak. Yeah. And the character traits that we do get from her, horniness being one of them. Being clever being another, except when I guess it was inconvenient for the plot. Mm-hmm. What else is there to her? Spite. Spite and her disability. Yep. Horniness, mm-hmm. some cleverness, spite, and chronic pain. But I feel like if we were going to even have her double down on spite, she, she should have been sassier. Yeah, she did lack the sass. She wasn't that interesting in her interactions yeah instead of being sassy she was kind of just like deadpan like she was humorless and i don't mind a humorless woman but like she didn't feel grumpy and edgy enough for the humorlessness but she didn't feel sassy enough for the deadpanness and the kind of edginess of it and it, it just left her feeling kind of boring yeah, especially since she's not driving this ship in any way. Yeah. Or really having much meaningful impact on the plot mm-hmm. outside of when she has her great victory at the end. Yeah, honestly, even after she makes that decision that she's going to do things out of spite, like, she only really continues with that decision for a couple chapters, and then the dragons come along, and after that she really just does whatever the dragons tell her to do. Yeah. Like, she's too much of a follower to be driving this ship. Mm-hmm. As for the other characters, Wow. I could not get behind the romance between Violet and Zayden. 
because I knew almost nothing about him outside of the fact that he was the rebel leader's son and clearly loyal to his friends. Yeah, outside of that, I know nothing about him. I don't even know why she felt threatened because he was so, like, not interested <laughs> or interesting. Yeah, I mean, they make him... They make him threatening physically. He's very big. She's very small. He has cool powers. He has very cool powers. He has shadow powers, which is neat. And they do give him a tragic backstory. Not just the tragic backstory of his dad led a rebellion and then he had to watch his parents get murdered. But also they reveal about halfway through that he has this additional tragic backstory that when all the parents died, they were gonna kill the kids too. And he, as the oldest of the children, being only like 18 or something, he made a pact with the government that he would take personal responsibility for every single one of these children. And he got branded, like one for every single one of them. And he got spellbound to all of them, that if any of them ever rebelled against the kingdom ever again, he would pay for it with his life. Mm-hmm. And that's cool. You can add Brave to his checklist. But that still doesn't make up for his lack of personality. Yeah. So he's got that. But, like, that really just plays into the, what we already know about him, which is that he's protective. Yeah. He's a protective person. He's very protective of Violet. And his protectiveness of her is different than Dane's, because rather than being protective of her and the, like, you're too weak to protect yourself kind of thing, it's more of a, like, you're kind of reckless and you run into danger. And I think you overestimate sometimes how strong the people around you are and how much they want to kill you. So it's not that I don't think you can take care of yourself. It's just that I think everyone needs a little help sometimes. Yeah. Which which is nice. I like a respectful protectiveness. <laughs> but also, like, up until she bonds with Tarn. He's her biggest threat. And before she bonds with Tarn, there are all these moments where he is threatening her. There's even a moment where they're, like, full-on tussling on the ground, like, fighting, and he's got weapons and stuff. And she's like, this is so sexy. (laughs) You know, I gotta say, I think that was, like, the only scene in the book that I actually did think was kind of hot. (laughs) Like, that one actually kind of worked for me. (laughs) The one where they're, they're wrestling around, she's yanking all the daggers off of him. Oh, he's yanking all the daggers off of her. Oh, right, he's yanking the daggers off of her. He's proving to her how easy it is to disarm her. You know, that one was actually kind of hot. None of the other scenes <laughs> in the book were hot. That one that one kind of got me a little bit. <laughs> but also, like, everyone's constantly talking about how he wants her dead. But clearly he doesn't and never did at any point. His first words to her are, Why would I kill you when the parapet can do it for me? Mm-hmm. And now that we know the truth, we know he never even wanted to kill her or cared about her at all. Like, not in the romance scene, but, like, initially. Yeah, he didn't care about killing her. He didn't care whether she lived or died until they were bonded, and then he cared whether she lived or died. So the fact that he has a threat to her was all just based on rumors and no facts whatsoever, like, doesn't that kind of make it weak? It does make it weak. And it makes the whole her being constantly turned on by how threatening he is kind of weird. And it's just a whole thing... And yeah, he is kind of poorly developed, and there's a lot of other characters that I felt could have been single characters. Like, there are four other marked one characters that we meet. I only remember half of their names, and honestly, they could have been condensed into, like, two characters. I'm pretty sure the only reason there's so many of them is because more of them need to die in the sequels. 
or get killed off, like, on the road to the end of this book. Yeah. Like, that was the thing, like, we talk about how Violet and Dane needed more developing, but everyone else was so undeveloped that I literally could not keep track of them, because there were so many, and their deaths meant absolutely nothing to me except for Liam's. Yeah, and that's the big exception. Liam. Liam, as far as his con contribution to the plot, nothing but death fodder. As far as his character development, second most developed character in the book. I know. We got to spend so much time with him because Violet wasn't distracted by how constantly horny she was. They actually got to have some real conversations. Yeah, and since he's assigned to be her bodyguard, he's with her all the time. She learns most of what she knows about Zayden through Liam because Liam was his foster brother. And then when Liam died, that just made me angry. Mm -hmm. Like, I wasn't just like, no, Liam. Oh, so sad. But it works. I was... Literally, right before Liam died, I thought to myself, you know, I think Liam would be a better romantic interest than Zayden, because we've actually spent more time with him getting to know him. He's kind of the most developed of all the marked ones. And then he died, and I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah, he was incredibly well-developed. Also, them killing him was, like, really upsetting because they'd already done a death fake-out for him once before. Exactly. You don't do a death fake-out with a character and then kill him in literally the exact same way. Yeah, that they did kill him in exactly the same way they death faked out him. Basically a way of being like, hey, remember how you saved his life this way? You can't do it twice. <laughs> I was like, come on, man. <laughs> But yeah, and he was definitely one of the most enjoyable characters. He was this really earnest, sweet guy. He had this, like, passion for wood carving. He was always whittling little dragons for people, which was like, that's fucking cute. <laughs> listen, listen. No other character in this book had a hobby. It's true. No one else had any interests. Other than fighting and dragons. <laughs> and Violet's, like, obsessed with this one storybook that plays into the plot later, because it was, like, apparently a banned book. That was the only book in the kingdom that mentioned the looming death threat. <laughs> so she was interested in that one book. And Liam was interested in wood carving. No one else has any interests whatsoever. Yeah. And the only reason the wood carving thing even exists is because in this world there's this tradition that when a person dies, you burn everything they ever owned. But when Liam dies, she keeps the wood carving he gave her. Or the wood carving he was making or something like that. So she technically breaks tradition and keeps something of his. Mm-hmm. And it's, like, you know, a sign that she doesn't believe in all the traditions of this world or something. But it's, like... You can't have developed characters without interests. Yeah. Either that or it's a hint that he's not really dead, because she also kept a book that belonged to her brother, and then he turned out to not be really dead. I think Liam's gonna be really dead. That was, the, that was a lengthy death scene. That yeah, he seemed, he seemed pretty freaking dead. And, I mean, his dragon was very distraught. His dragon was dead, that's why he died. Oh right, his he died because his dragon died, right? That was a whole thing. If your dragon dies, you die. If you die, your dragon doesn't necessarily die, but your dragon gets real pissed. So, yeah, all of that. The characters are just... Bland. Bland, yes, bland. Copy-paste. Mm -hmm. Like, even Violet's best friend, Rhiannon, I, she has a sister who just had a baby, I know nothing else about her. And, and she's bi. Cool. That is not a whole personality. <laughs> <laughs> and she makes poor choices in footwear. Ah, uh, yes. Of course. <laughs> she was around a lot, and I know nothing about her. She did not leave an impression. By the end of the book, I didn't know if she made it out alive. Yeah, because we, she, she rides off with Dane's crew. So, I mean, we assume she's alive, because she's not going into a real threat. She's going off to play games. Mm-hmm. 
but like she's gone. <laughs> no second thoughts about her. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to Violet's disability. I felt like this was a real mixed bag. So like you could put part of it in positives, part of it in the negatives, which we kind of have. Yeah. Because the thing is, like, I think I'd have to read the series to see what the author chooses to do with it over a longer period of time to decide whether or not this was good or bad representation. But like, uh, on one hand, having a disabled protagonist is great. Yeah. And especially since her disability does present real problems to her continually that aren't that easily solved. <laughs> However, the general attitude portrayed in the book by Violet herself, I believe, is that her disability is something that can be overcome and that gives her strength because she's always in pain so she knows how to take it. And on one hand, I can see a lot of disabled people resonating with that. But on the other hand, I don't like pushing this idea that you can overcome all of the challenges provided by your disability as if it doesn't even exist because that's just not true. <laughs> you can't escape being disabled. It's always going to be a part of you. And if the idea is you just have to break your body enough times until you get over it, if that's the point of the book, then I don't like it. That's harmful. Yeah, and that's the thing. There's this one very interesting scene where the thing is all of the dragon riders effectively ride bareback, but Tern and Zayden work together to make a very special saddle that straps Violet in. Because part of her disability involves her muscles just not being strong enough to keep her seat on the back of her dragon. So they make a saddle that will keep her strapped in. And she makes a big deal about not wanting to use it because it will make her look weak. But Taryn's like, look, you're not weak. You need an accommodation and I'm willing to make it. And this is coming from the dragon, who like... Dragons are typically very prideful, noble creatures, so the fact that this dragon is willing to make an accommodation for her, and the dragons notoriously hate weakness, that says a lot coming from the dragon, who's like, no, this is not weakness. This is me meeting you where you are because you are strong, but you need this. But then on the other hand, in the final battle, there's this very big deal made about the fact that she climbs out of the saddle. And she fights on Dragonback without the saddle and, like, proves that she can do that. And it's, like, great that you did that and all, but also kind of dissed on the message that it was okay for you to have this accommodation and that you could be just as strong of a dragon rider with this accommodation. And it kind of, it kind of gives the same vibes of, like, you know, the person climbing out of the wheelchair and walking for the first time kind of thing. It's like, okay, good for you, but also there are successes that don't involve not being disabled anymore. Yeah, and also that's not going to be an option for everyone who is a wheelchair user. Yeah, and it's not going to be an option for everyone who rides on the back of a dragon. So, like, good for you, but let's not, like, prop this up as the standard. Mm-hmm. It's not like you start in a wheelchair, you try really hard, and then you get up and walk again. Not everyone can do that. Yeah. And this this saddle gave kind of the similar vibes of like, oh, it's okay for you to use this for now, but you're gonna get better. And it's like, but she's not necessarily gonna get better. We don't actually know what Violet's disability is. We just know symptoms. 
a lot of people online have compared it to Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome because she has chronic pain, hyperflexibility, and joints that pop out a lot. So if that's the case, that's a chronic illness. That gets worse with time. She's not going to just magically get better because she got good at riding dragons. Mm -hmm. And the fact that what this book essentially presents is if you just exercise and want it really bad, you can cure your disability. Because that's all she does. She just exercises. She just works out. Mm-hmm. And they're like, if you just work out and want it really bad, eventually you'll just kind of be able to do things you couldn't do before. When everything we see in the first half of the book says, no, that's going to break her body and hurt her. Like, she has doctors actively telling her, like, hey, you pushed your body really hard and don't do that again or we're not going to be able to fix you. Because, like, you you broke a freaking knee or you popped a shoulder or something like that. And if you do this again, we might not be able to put it back. And it's just, it's a confusing narrative is what it is. It's a confusing narrative. Yeah, like, maybe it could be better in future books, but I feel like we're on very shaky territory right now. Yeah, because I'm not sure if the book is trying to say you can do anything in spite of your disability, or if they're trying to say your disability is only in your head. Yeah. And that's not a message that you want to blur. Mm-hmm. Okay, moving on. One of my biggest problems in this book is every single authority figure is either stupid or evil. There's no logic behind their, their actions, and it's really consistent how stupid they are. Like, the saddle thing. We just brought up the saddle. Violet's not the only person falling off the back of her dragon. Everyone else is, and their dragons don't even care enough to save them. Mm-hmm. Clearly, dragons, a large flying beast who do aero acrobatics, should be wearing saddles. So that it would reduce the death count. But no one does it. Because I guess they either want these kids dead, or because they're dumb. And you can say it's the dragon's pride, but if the biggest, baddest dragon can make this accommodation, clearly they all can. Not like our heckin' lives are on the line here. Mm -hmm. Not like we're defending from invaders and this is kind of important. Yeah, same goes for the parapet. Parapet is the first thing they have to do. In order to even enter the training, they have to walk across this parapet where one third of people die. Can you imagine if you were trying to join the military in the present day, you walked into the recruiter's office and they took your notes and everything and they were like, okay, so you're joining the Marines today. Yep. You're, uh, you're in good health. You're six foot two, whatever. All right. Now we're going to just have you walk across this tightrope between two skyscrapers. And if you make it across, you're in, cadet. <laughs> Nobody would join. And if they did join, we'd have a very small military. Like, and the thing is, they have conscription. All people at the age of 20 are required to pick one of these four quadrants. Either the scribes, the dragon riders, the infantrymen, who are the foot soldiers, or the healers. If one of your groups is certain death, with less than half of your people surviving training, your army's gonna be so fucking small. And that's kind of the thing. We actually see this problem in the book. They talk about how we really need more members because there's a war coming on. But they don't, like, oh, I don't know, ban their, their soldiers from killing each other all the time. <laughs> you don't think that maybe that might have something to do yeah. with your small numbers? 
Yeah, they set a few rules, like you can't kill each other in your sleep. You can't kill each other during training exercises. You can't um, kill or, any... No, you can kill each other during training exercises. You can't kill each other during formation. So, like, when we're all standing out on the field at attention and, you know, your superior's talking, you can't kill each other then. That's not allowed, because, you know, that, that'll disrupt assembly. Mm-hmm. You probably can't kill your superiors either. Yeah. But, like, still, like, why would you ever run your forces this way? You know, the idea is you'd keep having them for as long as possible. <laughs> so why wouldn't you make semi-dangerous tests that would then result in them being moved into the infantry rather than death? Yeah. And the way Violet's mother is like, yeah, you're probably gonna die going into the Dragon Riders, but I don't see any other option because my pride might be hurt. So it's like, okay, you're stupid or evil. The people who decided no saddles, stupid or evil. The people who make the rules, stupid or evil. There's no other options for how bizarrely this world is constructed. Yeah, it's literally everything is just die. Mm-hmm. Also, like, the main twist. The government is hiding the fact that evil wizards and their evil almost dragons are threatening the entire continent we live on. Because they think that we're going to be safe because our wards protect us. Even though we know our wards are fading and we don't know why. You'd think that would cause some alarm and make people want to alert their citizens, but they don't. They think ignorance is bliss. And yeah, that may harken back to uh, a certain recent presidency. <laughs> but nevertheless, <laughs> really all of the people in power agreed? That this was the way to go about it? Just be sitting ducks? <laughs> Everyone said that's a brilliant idea and we're gonna defend that to the end? And reduce our own forces? Yeah. And in that case, even the dragons know that the venom and the wyvern exist and that this is a thing that's happening. And even the dragons agree. Like, mm, better not tell the recruits. And I have to assume it's supposed to be like a if they knew what they were really fighting, they'd never sign up kind of thing. But like... They're already signing up now when half of them are going to die before they ever even get out of college. They don't even have a choice about signing up, so, like, true, 160 of them have no choice. <laughs> I get you don't want to cause a panic, but you killed a lot of people to keep this secret and the threat's still there. It's right outside our door. It's getting closer, and you don't want to, like, maybe respond to that? Yeah, they literally destroyed every book that had the word Venon or Wyvern in it so that people wouldn't even know this threat was a possibility. Like, it's very... It's very reminiscent of, like, the White Walkers in Game of Thrones, how everyone's like, no, those aren't really real, but, like, really, they're very, very real up there. Mm-hmm. But even then, you could say that, like, the North was pretty far from King's Landing, so it probably wouldn't matter to them eventually, especially with this long history of it not mattering. But no, in the book, they're right outside our walls. Yeah, they're right there! So, yeah, that's just, it's dumb, it's stupid, we hate it. Did we get all of these? Let's see. The romance was not good. Do you want to touch on the nickname? Oh, yeah. There's this nickname. This is this falls between a nitpick and a full negative note. So, Zayden has this nickname for Violet. He calls her Violence. And the thing is, at first, the nickname is cute. Even a little hot. And at first, it's funny because she's not Violet. <laughs> yeah. And it almost kind of works because, like, the first time he sees her, or the second time he ever sees her, she's, like, threatening a guy with a knife to his balls. And she does kind of have this thing that she's willing to resort to violence to protect herself. 
and he's also he's also using it as an encouragement to be like you shouldn't fear violence when you're here you should be willing to be violent but the thing is is that there's this very big deal that's made about three quarters of the way through the book where he calls her violet instead of violence and she remarks that he only ever calls her violet when they are alone violence is the nickname he uses to keep her at a distance when there are other people around or when he doesn't want to feel too close to her violet her real name is what he calls her when they are intimate and close but then just a couple chapters later they have this very emotional scene where she walks out onto the parapet where he is mourning because it's the anniversary of his father's death and he is very scared to see her out there because it's dangerous out there. And also he's feeling very raw and emotional because his father died and, you know, it's the anniversary of the death and he's reflecting on a lot of things and he's having lots of emotions. And he sees her and he calls her violence. And immediately the whole meaning behind the nickname changes and suddenly he calls her violence all the time as a pet name. Even when he thinks she's dying, he calls her violence. And so I didn't like that the nickname was inconsistent. I didn't like that the meaning behind it changed with no notice. And that attention was specifically brought to the symbolism of the nickname right before it was then changed with no notice. Yeah. That bothered me a lot. And then when he starts calling her violence all the time, it got old very quickly. Yeah. And, you know, I think it also felt like he was doing it a lot more because they were together a lot more often, because by that point they were together together. Mm-hmm. But, like, I just, I didn't enjoy it. So now we do have nitpicks. Mm-hmm. Did you think we were stopping here? <laughs> yeah, did you did you think we were done? No, no, now we have nitpicks. Those were the big notes. These are the little notes. Mm-hmm. So, first of all, about the dragon's names um, and stuff. So there's this big deal made about how nobody knows what their secret power is going to be. Like everybody gets blessed by the dragons and then they have a few weeks where like they're waiting for their powers to come in. And then they all get real surprised when their powers come in. But the thing is, every single dragon's name is just the Gaelic word for whatever their power is. So like Tarn... His full name, and I apologize in advance, by the way, if I butcher these, Gaelic is obviously not my first language. I'm gonna do my best. Taren's full name is Taranamach, which means thunder. Violet's power? Lightning. Sagael is a phonetic spelling of a mispronunciation of skull, which means shadow. And Darna is short for and Arnram, which means second honor. She is the second dragon. Mm-hmm. Liam's power is ice. His dragon's name is Day, which means ice. So, like, nobody should be surprised by what their power is. Because it's your dragon's name. You were, you were blessed by a dragon named Flight. Guess what? You can fly now. Which kind of begs the question. So every now and then a crew crew gets mind reading powers, which are different from say from Dane's memory transfer powers. Because mm-hmm, he has to touch people. Because he has to touch people. But if someone spontaneously gets mind reading powers, 
they're immediately executed. So that they can't find out the secrets. So that they can't find out the secrets about the Wyvern. I mean, that's not what they say, but you know that's what it is. Mm-hmm. I kind of even suspected before I knew that the Wyvern were real. Yeah. That, yeah, they don't want you to find out the secrets. Mm-hmm. But if every dragon's name correlates to their power, why are they still cycling through and trying to re-gift recruits the dragons that come with mind-reading powers? Yeah, like, if you have a dragon whose name is Mind Reader, just say, hey, Mind Reader, um, we don't need you anymore. I think you should stay home. Mm-hmm. For a while. You, you've had enough. You should retire. Mm-hmm. Problem solved. I guess they just weren't smart enough to come up with this. <laughs> You'd think they'd notice if every dragon kept giving the same power to her crew, but I guess not. Yeah. Second thing. Second nitpick. Violet's Vi- hair. <laughs> yeah. You pointed this out. Would you like to go along with it? I can. Alright, so here's the thing. Violet, being our typical protagonist, has an interesting hair color. Not necessarily a sin. Violet's visual identifier so that she can be noticed from a distance and have people be suspicious of her and can't really hide from her enemies because of her legendary hair color. Her hair is supposed to be brown at the roots and silver at the ends, so her hair is mostly gray. This is supposed to be because of her disability sucking the life out of her. Yeah, and the whole reason she has this disability is supposedly because when she was a baby or when her mom was pregnant with her one of the two there was a plague and the plague like fucked her up yeah and so like she's disabled because she was really sick as a kid mm-hmm. and this illness stripped the color from her hair mm-hmm. that's all well good and believable because sometimes people do lose their hair color under extreme stress but the fact that it's brown at the roots and the roots keep growing out brown and then the hair just magically changes color at a certain length makes no sense yeah Like, I get it. Brown to silver ombre is hot right now. But it does not grow that way. I know. Her hair should either be streaked with silver or all silver. Yep, or you could even have, like, brown on the bottom if she's kept it that long. But of all the ways we could have oriented this brown to silver ombre, having it grow out brown and then just decide to beautifully change to silver in an ombre effect doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's giving very, like, almost my immortal vibes. I have long ebony black hair with purple streaks and blue eyes like limpid tears. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that bothered me. Yeah. Why couldn't we commit to all silver hair? Mm-hmm. I guess she didn't want it to be too similar to the Targaryens. Mm. That's probably a good point. <laughs> also, speaking of visual descriptors... Certain characters are given visual descriptors that are then reused over and over and over again. For example, Jack, the guy that wants to kill her for most of the book, is given the descriptor of having arctic eyes, which I'm assuming means his eyes are like a really frosty blue. Mm -hmm. And it is used over and over and over again. Every time he tries to kill her, she talks about his arctic eyes. There's one point where it's used like three times over the course of two pages all about them arctic eyes and i really hate when those things get reused like you can use it once or twice after that they're just blue okay they're blue mm-hmm. yeah you don't want to draw the reader's attention to unusual phrases being repeated mm-hmm. oh there's this ongoing thing about how violet has to fight with daggers because swords are just too heavy for her and this is something that pops up in a lot of fantasy novels 
And I'm really, really sick of it because I have like looked this up. So something like say your average 1500 long sword, you want to guess how much that weighs. How much, babe? 10 pounds. That's pretty light. That's a baby. And I guarantee you Violet can lift a baby. Mm. I mean, we see her carrying around bags full of books. And books are heavy. Yeah, they talked about, like, she was carrying a really heavy pack, and her sister's like, it can't be that heavy. You have to carry everything you own. So I imagine it's like a standard military-issue pack pack. And aren't those, like, 60 pounds? Yeah, those are heavy. Now you're telling me she can't lift 10 pounds? (laughs) Yeah, but apparently she can't swing a 10-pound sword. And keep in mind, that's a long sword. It's a big sword. That's not a regular one-handed fighting sword. Those are lighter. Those are like five to seven pounds. And this is something that goes on and on in fantasy things all the time. There's this constant misunderstanding that women are too weak to lift a sword. It's mentioned in all kinds of fantasy stories over and over. And it's simply not true. Swords are not that friggin' heavy. They're not meant to be heavy. (laughs) If they were that heavy, children wouldn't have been able to train with them. And there were children out there fighting with those swords back in the day. She can lift a sword. Mm -hmm. If you want her to fight with daggers because it's cool, just let her fight with daggers because it's cool. Don't make it out that she's too physically weak to lift a sword. Mm -hmm. Because she's not. Yeah. You know, dragon- daggers have their own strategy to use with them. Maybe we could have talked about that a little bit. Plus, daggers make more sense for fighting on back of a dragon. Yeah. <laughs> and you're not swinging around a giant fucking sword from the back of a dragon. It doesn't make any sense. Really should have taught them archery. Archery would have been good. Like, why don't these dragon riders know archery? I- I'm now, like, really <laughs> in-depth thinking about this. Like, why would you make them primarily use swords from the back of a dragon? They're going to be in the air the whole time. That, that's the point. You've repeatedly said they're gonna fight from the back of a dragon. It's not like the dragon's just a transport vehicle. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea is that they mostly use their magic when they're fighting on back of a dragon, but not all of them have fighting powers. Why didn't we start with archery? That would have made so much more sense. And that actually does take quite a bit of muscle power. And then you could have had some struggles with that. Yeah, then it would have made sense why she would have had trouble, because she's constantly got joints that are popping out of place. Her shoulder would have been popping out every time she tried to pull the bow back. Oh, God, that would have made so much more sense. Okay, moving on. The last thing is, the in the very last chapter of this, we suddenly switch to Zayden's point of view. And we've made it clear before, we're not usually fans of switching POV at the very last chapter. I assumed it was because Violet was dead. It was not. She's alive. But what happens is, Zayden's in the point of view for the last chapter. He's narrating things. And he's talking about Brennan. Because the only reason she survived was because Brennan healed her. Because that's his magic. He can mend people magically. So... He keeps talking about him and the Mender, and basically having Zayden take over the point of view for this final chapter is an excuse for him to be purposely vague with himself in his own head so that we can have the final sentence revealing Brennan is alive. It was kind of unnecessary. Okay, I take that back. It was super unnecessary. But at the same time, this is the closest I ever felt to Zayden. So it was kind of like, mm, I don't like that we're POV switching for the last chapter if the main character isn't dead. Feels unnecessary, feels inconsistent. But I also feel a little bit closer to Zayden, so like, do I fully hate it? I I don't know. 
I, I hate that there's no character development for Zayden. That's what I really don't like. I didn't feel any closer to Zayden. I didn't feel like we learned anything about him that we didn't already know. I mean, you're right. We didn't. It's probably just that the audiobook narrator changed. <laughs> so I was like, okay, at least I'm hearing his voice now. Final thoughts? <laughs> I feel exhausted. <laughs> A little, yeah. So for me, this book was like nothing special. It doesn't deserve all the hype that it's been getting. It does not deserve to be one of the highest rated fantasy books ever on Goodreads. But it's not like the death of fantasy either. It's not offensively bad. I think this book probably fills a niche for people who maybe want like the sexiness and the dragons and stuff from Game of Thrones, but with like less gratuitous violence and maybe the school style drama of a Divergent or a Harry Potter. It wasn't for me but it was fine. It's a three out of five for me. I agree. I think there's a lot of cool ideas that went into the story, but unfortunately the execution just didn't work. I kept wanting more from the characters in the setting, but so much time was focused on the lead's libido that it overshadowed all other potential. On top of that, the romance felt way too shallow to get into the story, so it fails as both a fantasy and a romance. I'm glad that this book has clearly found its audience, but for me, it's just okay. I also give it three out of five stars. As always, our ratings are subjective. You can give us your notes at Couple of Notes on Twitter, on Instagram and threads at Couple of Notes Podcast with underscores between each word, or at TikTok at Couple of Notes Podcast with no underscores. You can also support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Couple of Notes. And remember to give us a five-star rating on whatever podcast platform you are listening to this on. Thank you for listening, and we'll meet back here after the next chapter. chapter.